welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is still the colorectal module from the General Surgical Curriculum. And the operation or topics we'll be covering today are anorectal incontinence and rectal prolapse. So first off today, we'll be talking about anorectal incontinence. This is a diagnosis that's obviously associated with pretty significant social and psychological consequences for patients. The incidence of this is not really known. It's thought to be between 1% and even up to 19% of the population that can be affected with faecal incontinence. And it's thought that a number of patients don't even seek help because of embarrassment. The definition is involuntary loss of stool or soiling at socially unacceptable times. The Rome 3 criteria for functional gastrointestinal problems talks about two different types of faecal incontinence, and this is passive or urge incontinence. Passive incontinence is characterized by the lack of awareness of the need to defecate before incontinence occurs, and urge incontinence is where you have the desire to defecate, but the incontinence occurs despite efforts to retain stool. So in order to understand the factors that may contribute to incontinence, it's first important to think about the things that actually maintain continence. And this is quite a complex issue. There's actually a lot of different factors that contribute to continence. And this includes mechanical anatomical factors, rectal and anal sensation, rectal compliance, and also stool consistency. So mechanical or anatomic factors that contribute to continence include the anal sphincter itself. And this is composed of an internal and external anal sphincter. The internal anal sphincter is an expansion of the circular layer of smooth muscle of the bowel wall. And the tone of this sphincter actually contributes 70 to 80% of the resting sphincter pressure, but only 40% after distension of the rectum. The external anal sphincter is a skeletal muscle sphincter, which is an extension of the levator ani muscle. As this is skeletal muscle, this contributes to the ability to voluntarily squeeze the anal sphincter complex and avoid defecation when it's not socially acceptable to do so. Other mechanical or anatomic factors include the anal mucosal folds and vascular cushions, which are thought to help provide a seal and contribute about 10 to 20% of the resting tone of the anal muscle. And the puborectalis muscle forms a sling around the rectum, which leads to the anorectal angle. So the angle of the anus and rectum is approximately nearly 90 degrees. And this acts like a flap valve in order to um, help contribute to continence. Rectal and anal sensation or the neural innervation of this area is also really important to continence. The nerves involved in this area include the pudendal nerve, which comes from the S2, 3 and 4 nerve roots, and this innervates the external anal sphincter. Pelvic branches of S3 and 4 innervate the puborectalis muscle. Rectal distension is transmitted along the S2, 3, 4 parasympathetic nerves, which travel back along the pelvic splanchnic nerves. 
And all of these contribute to the sensation and the reflex that comes with defecation and also the sensation and anal squeeze that's required to maintain continence. So the rectoanal inhibitory reflex is part of this pathway. And basically this is where when the rectum is distended with stool, the internal sphincter relaxes, which leads to a subconscious reflex contraction of the external anal sphincter. This provides a person with a sensation of urgency, and this is followed by the pelvic floor relaxing, which decreases the acuity of that anorectal angle caused by the puborectalis muscle, and then this leads to defecation if it's socially appropriate. If it's not socially appropriate, then there's voluntary contraction of the external anal sphincter and the pelvic floor, which then leads to the sensation of urgency subsiding as the rectum accommodates to the distension of the stool. Another feature of continence is that of anal sampling. And this is where as that internal anal sphincter relaxes, it then allows a small amount of stool to then be sampled um, and moved down towards the anus. And this allows the differentiation between gas, liquid and solid stool. Loss of rectal sensation due to a loss of those pelvic splanchnic nerves or the nervi erigentes leads to an inability to defecate because that stretch sensation is not being sensed and that and therefore that rectoanal inhibitory reflex is not being activated. So another thing that contributes to continence is rectal compliance. The rectum is a reservoir. It's a wider aspect of the colon and it has those uh, left, right and left lateral folds, which allow storage of stool. And that storage allows you to be able to defer defecation until the social conditions are conducive to defecation. If that rectal compliance is altered, then a small volume can cause high interrectal pressures, which then overwhelms the anal resistance and can cause incontinence. The last thing is stool consistency. So in patients with limited continence, a liquid stool may cause incontinence, but a well-formed stool may not do so. So now that we've talked about what contributes to continence, let's talk a little bit about potential causes of incontinence. And I've grouped these into structural issues, functional issues, changes in stool characteristics, and some others. So structural problems that may contribute to the formation of incontinence include disruption of the anal sphincter, disruption of the pelvic floor, or reduced rectal compliance. So first looking at disruption of the anal sphincter, in general, a issue with the internal anal sphincter or the endovascular cushions causes a poor seal impaired anal sampling and leads to a passive type incontinence, whilst external muscle injuries cause an urge-related incontinence. The causes of this include obstetric trauma, anorectal surgery, such as that for hemorrhoids, fissures or fistula, pelvic traumas or fractures, and weaknesses secondary to other causes such as scleroderma. Issues with the pelvic floor include excessive perineal descent, pelvic floor trauma, or an anatomical disturbance of the pelvic floor. This leads to an obtuse anorectal angle, so loss of that flap valve type um, mechanism of continence, as well as weakness of the sphincter. Causes of a loss of accommodation of the rectum include 
anything that really affects the rectal compliance. So this could be inflammation with inflammatory bowel disease or colitis, radiation, rectal prolapse, or rectal surgery, including removal of the rectum um, and low anterior resection syndrome or pouch surgery. There's another concept of uh, descending perineum syndrome, which is in women with long-standing constipation, it's thought that excessive straining may lead to progressive denervation of the pelvic floor, and this um, leads to excessive descent of the perineal body and can contribute to rectal prolapse and also making that anorectal angle more obtuse, leading to rectal incontinence. The next group of causes of fecal incontinence I wanted to talk about is functional issues. And this mostly has to do with issues with anorectal sensation. Basically, there's a number of potential causes of this, including obstetric trauma, spinal cord injuries or strokes, multiple sclerosis, diabetes affecting nerves. And this basically leads to a loss of stool awareness and sensation in the rectum and impairs that anorectal reflex. This often leads to a fecal impaction type syndrome and a megarectum with overflow incontinence because the stool is getting down to the rectum, but it's just not being evacuated. The next subset of causes is changes in stool characteristics. And I briefly mentioned this earlier, but the volume and consistency of stool can affect somebody's ability to have continence. So if you've ever had a really, really bad bout of gastroenteritis and had difficulty maintaining continence, you'll understand that a very liquid stool in large volume can be difficult to control, even in somebody without problems. So in patients with diarrhea, they get urgency and rapid stool transit. And they also have impaired accommodation of the rectum due to inflammation. So the last area I call other, which are things such as issues with physical mobility or cognitive function, uh, dementia, physical disabilities, food intolerances, which can lead to diarrhea, flatus and malabsorption. So the next step is to talk about the workup of patients presenting with faecal incontinence. As you can tell already, history can give you a number of pieces of information that point you towards the potential cause or contributing factors to a patient's incontinence. So taking a really thorough history, especially delving into the incontinence and what it is exactly that they're experiencing, whether they have passive incontinence or urge incontinence or a mixture of these whether the incontinence is just to solid stools, liquids, or gas, how frequently this is happening, the effect on that patient's life. And you can use things such as the Cleveland Clinic continence score as a baseline, um, which can help you assess any improvements to their overall function. It's good to talk about the stool consistency, any potentially contributing medications, look through their past medical history, see if they've ever had a rectal prolapse, neurological issues such as spinal canal stenosis or injuries, if they've got diabetes, whether they have scleroderma, whether they've had previous anal rectal surgery, radiation or an ultra low anterior resection, and also if they have any psychiatric history. The next step in workup is doing an examination. Examination should include a external exam of the anus and the perineal area, You want to look for signs of previous trauma or surgery or episiotomies. Look for any evidence of skin excoriation, which might suggest stool seepage. Have a look at the pelvic floor. You want to have a look at the perineal body and see if it's thinned out or descended. 
Um, you want to have a look at the anal orifice and see if there's any gaping and ask the patient to strain, which may accentuate a descending perineum and also potentially show you a rectal prolapse or rectocele. The next thing to do is to palpate and assess the sensation of the anal margin. You need to perform a per-rectal examination. You want to assess the tone or resting tone of the anal sphincter and get the patient to bear down or squeeze to feel if there's a good um, tone when they're doing that. You want to feel for any masses, any fecal impaction, evidence of a rectocele, and patients will also um, need a vaginal exam if they're a woman as well as proctoscopy to complete the examination. So the next thing to think about is investigations. And really the investigation should actually be guided by your history and exam and targeted to what you think the causes or contributing factors to the incontinence may be. For an issue with the anal sphincter mechanism, you want to do a really good examination and you can also do an endoanal ultrasound, which can help you assess the structure and integrity of the sphincter muscles. An MRI pelvis is another modality that may be used to assess the sphincter muscles. If you're worried about an issue with the pelvic floor function or a defect in the pelvic floor, a defecating proctogram or nowadays an MRI defecography is useful to demonstrate the function of the pelvic floor and its movement during defecation. This may also give you information about prolapse. You can have a look at that anorectal angle and assess how that's moving and what's happening to it during defecation. In addition to that, you can also see if there's perineal descent during defecation, as well as the efficiency of rectal emptying. So usually 90 to 100% of rectal contents are evacuated. So you can see if there's only partial evacuation of the contents. The scan's actually done quite interestingly. Um, the patient's placed on a special chair and a and the contrast agent is placed into the rectum and the MRI pictures are taken as the patient actually defecates and passes that contrast. It's worth looking up some pictures of it because you get some really good images and it shows you not only the anatomical features around the pelvic floor and the rectum and the anus, but also the actual function and movement of this during defecation. If you're worried about an issue with the function or neurology or sensation in that area, the test to do is anal manometry, which is a test that can assess the anal sphincter tone and strength, as well as the perception of rectal sensation or distension. A catheter is placed through the anus and into the rectum that has pressure sensors, and so you can assess the resting tone of the anal canal. You can get the patient to squeeze and look at how the pressure changes. You can ask the patient to push and see if there's any pressure happening within the rectum and also how the sphincter relaxes. And you can also fill up a balloon in the rectum and assess that rectoanal reflex, looking at the uh, relaxation of the internal sphincter as the rectum is distended and see how that's working. So again, it gives you really good functional information about the anal sphincter and um, perception of uh, distension and sensation in the rectum. A couple of other potential tests that can be done to look at this is electromyography, which is performed using electrodes that examine nerve conduction, and it basically looks for denervation of the sphincter muscles and also of puborectalis. And another test which can be used is the looking at pudendal nerve latency, uh, which is quite user-dependent, a little bit controversial, but basically looks at the um, nerve function of the pudendal nerves. 
Other simple tests you might consider doing are things like stool cultures if the patient's having a lot of diarrhea, making sure that you do a PR exam to rule out a impacted hard stool and overflow incontinence. And also patients with changes in their bowel habits definitely need a colonoscopy to rule out an associated malignancy. So let's talk a little bit about treatments for fecal incontinence. This comes under non-operative and operative management options. In general, non-operative management should be tried for all patients, regardless really of the cause of their incontinence. This may involve modification of the stool consistency using stool bulking agents, appearance in patients who are constipated, or even agents to slow down diarrhea such as loperamide and codeine. Patients can use pads to help manage incontinence. Patients can be referred to pelvic floor physiotherapists to do a period of biofeedback and retraining, where usually they'll use abdominal wall muscles and pelvic floor muscle exercises, as well as a audio or visual feedback mechanism to try to help patients learn how to coordinate the pelvic floor and squeeze of the anal um, sphincter muscles in a more coordinated fashion. There's no real good uh, evidence for any of these things, uh, sort of level three or four evidence, but is tried in most patients. In patients who have overflow incontinence, they need a good bowel regime with full evacuation of the bowels occurring regularly with disimpaction, colon cleansing with enemas and laxatives regularly to ensure that they don't get to the point where they're having a rectum full of hard stool. If patients have a storage capacity issue or diarrhea, then you may want to reduce dietary fiber and give an anti-diarrheal agent in order to slow down colonic transit. Patients with spinal injuries should really be managed by a specialist unit and they may require anti-grade irrigation of the colon. So onto the part that we really get interested in, which is the surgical management of incontinence. Indications for surgical or operative management include obviously a failure of conservative management principles, and this shouldn't be used for anybody with an overflow incontinence or a storage capacity issue. There's a number of options which really depend on what the underlying cause is of the incontinence. The first option is repair of a damaged sphincter, which can either be done immediately, such as in obstetric trauma, with an anterior anal sphincter repair or for a delayed repair, this is called a sphincteroplasty. And this is indicated in patients with a localized 90 to 180 degree full thickness defect. It's very difficult to repair the internal sphincter, and often the sphincter is repaired as one muscle. The two muscles aren't separated out separately. You want to preserve anal mucosa to reduce the risk of infection. Usually a sphincteroplasty will involve an overlapping repair of the muscle, and basically, you can do this through the vaginal wall or through a mucosal incision, and you overlap the sphincters and do one row of sutures on the inside and one row of sutures on the outside, usually with something like a 2-0 PDS. And you want to do a horizontal mattress suture, kind of like repairing a tendon. You don't want to mobilize the muscle too much laterally, as you can cause an anal mucosal injury or a pudendal nerve injury. 
It gives more tension to the muscles, so increases the anal tone, but can cause ischemic changes. But about 70 to 80% of patients may improve, especially in um, the first sort of one to five years. An end-to-end repair can also be done, but this should only be done if you can remove scar tissue and get good approximation. And this is often not quite possible when you're talking about a delayed repair. There's other surgical options for a damaged sphincter, but from my reading, it looks like these are relatively obsolete now and a lot of these didn't have very good outcomes. So things like a gracilis muscle transposition to try to rebuild a sphincter muscle has had disappointing long-term outcomes. There are artificial sphincters that can be implanted to try to replace or reinforce the native sphincter muscle. This includes things like a magnetic anal sphincter or even cuffs that can be sort of pumped up and deflated. But the main issue with these is they often erode and they can actually cause an outlet obstruction and issues evacuating the bowels themselves. So these aren't really in routine use. If the issue is with the pelvic floor, especially if there's a rectal prolapse, you can repair the prolapse and actually improve that person's continence. So if there's a high-grade internal rectal prolapse, there's up to 91% of patients will have an improvement with a ventral rectopexy. So identifying a prolapse and fixing that can help to treat the rectal incontinence. The other thing that's being used more and more is something called sacral nerve stimulation. It's not really sure why this works. It's thought to be a multifaceted process that both turns off fecal urgency, so reduces the overactivity of the rectum, that it slows down the waves of peristalsis, that it increases the sphincter tone and also improves rectal compliance and colonic motility. It's often used to stimulate the S3 nerve root, which is a mixed nerve root that's both motor and sensory. And it's thought that it somehow controls peristalsis and it's very good for urge incontinence um, as patients seem to lose the severe urgency that they have to go to the bathroom and it gives them an opportunity to defer defecation to another time and improves their awareness of when they actually do need to open the bowels. These patients need to have failed medical or conservative management and obviously have an intact sphincter. And it involves electrodes placed on the S2, S3 or S4 sacral nerve roots at the back and an implantable stimulator placed just under the skin over the sacrum usually or in the sort of lower back area that will stimulate those nerves. And often patients will have temporary electrodes placed for four weeks with an assessment about whether they have a good outcome. And if they are having a good outcome, then that will be changed to a permanent stimulator. This has excellent short and long-term results with sort of 65 to 85% success rate. So it's being used more and more for faecal incontinence. And the last surgical option, which has to be talked about, is a defunctioning stoma. And this is something that should be used, obviously, once all other options have been exhausted and for severe end-stage faecal incontinence. It can be done as a laparoscopic sigmoid colostomy, loop colostomy, or a loop ileostomy. And in these patients, there may be a significant improvement in their overall quality of life. So that's my comprehensive summary of anorectal incontinence. Moving on now to the very exciting topic of rectal prolapse. So starting off with a definition. 
Rectal prolapse is the external protrusion of the rectum through the anus. It can be full thickness with circumferential protrusion through the anus of all of the linings of the rectal wall, or it can be mucosal where only the mucosal layer prolapses. It can also be internal where the prolapse doesn't pass beyond the anus, and this is often seen on MRI defecography. The epidemiology is typically elderly patients. It occurs in women more frequently than it occurs in men. And the pathophysiology of this condition is poorly understood, but it's thought to be a failure of the connective tissue support of the rectum. Theories include a mid-rectal intersusception due to chronic straining, an association with intestinal motility problems or slow transit, and also a low anal resting pressure contributing to prolapse or potentially being a consequence of it. There's a number of risk factors for rectal prolapse, and this includes multiparity, pelvic floor dysfunction, prior pelvic floor surgery, pelvic floor anatomical defects such as other conditions such as an enterocele, cystocele, or rectocele, patients with collagen disorders such as Ehlers-Danlos or Marfan's, anatomical problems such as a defect in the pelvic floor or weakness of the levator ani, which, as I mentioned, could potentially be due to the prolapse itself or a consequence of the prolapse, a deep cul-de-sac or pouch of Douglas, and often you find that there's almost a completely intraperitoneal rectum in some of these patients. These patients often have a redundant sigmoid colon. They also have a weak sphincter muscle, and you may see anal gaping when you do an external examination. Patients with lifelong constipation and straining are at higher risk. Patients who are obese and patients with scleroderma are also at higher risk of developing rectal prolapse. Looking at the clinical presentation, so how do these patients actually present to you in the surgical office? So they may present with the prolapse itself, so they notice that the mucosa comes out of the rectum when they defecate and it may be able to go back in or they may present with it out and swollen so it's not going to go back in. They can present with perianal discomfort, bleeding or mucus discharge, which can be due to irritation of the mucosa as it comes out. They can present with constipation and straining, incontinence, so if you heard from the First part of this episode, incontinence can be a consequence of prolapse. And patients may also um, present with obstructive defecation. So they might describe incomplete evacuation of the bowel, excessive straining, and potentially needing assistance from laxatives or digital manipulation. When you take a history from these patients, you want to learn about how long this has been going on for. Typically, they'll describe the prolapse only occurring with defecation and Subsequently, over time, it may prolapse at any time. You want to ask them about their incontinence history, any aids that they need to pass a stool, so such as laxatives or manual digitation, which may suggest a rectocele, and also talk about their past history, so things like obstetric trauma, previous surgery, neurological or psychological issues. 
on examination. It's a similar exam to anal rectal incontinence exam. So you want to first have a look and do an external exam. And you may see this um, open anus, which is also called a patchless anus, which um, demonstrates reduced tone. You want to do a per rectal examination, again, looking at the anal tone and the sphincter muscle itself. And you want the patient to bear down and you should feel the puborectalis relax on bearing down. You may be able to uh, bring the prolapse out if we're, as the patient bears down, although I have never been able to do that in the rooms. I think it would have to be quite uh, um, significant for that to occur. And also you want um, to feel in the rectum to make sure that there's no lump or uh, cancer that could potentially be a lead point for the prolapse. In terms of investigation, there's quite a number of investigations you could potentially do for this problem. I'm not really clear when you would or wouldn't use all of these. Definitely patients with rectal symptoms or bowel symptoms should have a colonoscopy to rule out polyps or malignancies. You could also consider other tests depending on your history and clinical examination. So again, you could do a manometry to assess the sphincter complex, an endoanal ultrasound to look at the sphincter defects. You may do a defecography study or a dynamic MRI study to look for coexistence of other pelvic floor disorders or rectocele. Um, and you can also do colonic transit studies in patients with a history of severe constipation. But in general, you should be able to diagnose this problem based on your history and clinical examination. And an examination under anesthetic when you do a colonoscopy may be helpful um, to use some Babcocks to pull out the anal rectal mucosa in order to demonstrate the prolapse if it's not completely clear from your history and exam. So let's talk a little bit about management of rectal prolapse. So this comes into conservative and surgical management. So conservative management for patients with mucosal prolapse is first line. This includes a combination of laxatives and increasing the fiber intake to try to give the patient a soft formed stool that is easier for them to pass. If it really is just a mucosal prolapse and not a full thickness prolapse, you could also consider other endoscopic techniques such as banding or sclerotherapy, excision of the mucosa, procedures for prolapsed hemorrhoids and a transrectal stapling of that uh, rectal prolapse or mucosal prolapse. But this is only useful if it's just a mucosal prolapse and it's really just removing that redundant mucosal tissue. For a full thickness rectal prolapse, this really does need surgery. It gets worse over time and it causes sphincter damage the longer that it's prolapsing out. So you do need to talk about treatment. Increasing fiber and bulking the stool may offer some improvement in symptoms, but that's not the definitive management for the condition. So when thinking about surgery, the considerations include looking at the general health of the patient. Typically, the decision about whether to do a perineal approach or a laparoscopic approach was determined by the fitness of the patient. So for elderly, frail patients, a perineal approach was used, and for um, fitter patients, an abdominal approach was used. But the evidence is probably there's not much difference in outcomes, um, so this doesn't have to be a hard and fast rule. Constipation and whether the patient has coexisting constipation issues need to be taken into consideration because a prolapse repair may exacerbate these symptoms. And some surgeons would talk about 
removing the redundant sigmoid loop at the time of surgery. So doing a laparoscopic approach um, at the time of surgery, doing a sigmoid resection as well as a rectopexy in order to avoid exacerbating or worsening constipation. For men with a rectal prolapse, you may consider a perineal approach over a laparoscopic approach to avoid issues with pelvic autonomic nerves and the risk of erectile dysfunction. When prolapse does occur, especially in women, it's usually mixed with other urogenital prolapses or other pelvic floor disorders. So it's important to investigate for these and plan a multidisciplinary approach that may include referral to and involving urogynecologists. And the treatment goals for surgical management of rectal prolapse is preventing prolapse and optimizing patient's continence and bowel function. So there's a number of different surgeries, and as I've briefly mentioned, there's both perineal and abdominal approaches. So starting with the perineal approaches, the two options are a Delorme's procedure or an Altmyers procedure. So a Delorme's procedure is good for elderly patients. It can be done under local or spinal anesthetic and basically is a mucosal proctectomy and muscularis plicating procedure. So it involves removal of the prolapsing mucosa and then plicating the muscle back together to reduce the prolapsing uh, muscle layer. It's typically done in lithotomy, but it can be done prone, and often a lone star retractor is used to retract the anus. And you use a sponge forcep or babcocks and pull the prolapse out to guide your upper limit of resection. Some surgeons will use hydrodissection with adrenaline and saline into the submucosal layer in order to separate that mucosal layer from the underlying muscle. And basically, you do a circumferential incision through the proximal mucosa with cutting diathermy and then coagulation diathermy to dissect the mucosa off that inner circular muscle layer, extending all the way to your proximal margin, um, just proximal to the dentate line. Once you've completely excised that mucosa, you then plicate the muscle layer, taking several bites um, in a sort of linear fashion along the muscle. And one surgeon I talked to said that he uses a 3-0 Vicryl, which he puts through a gelinet, sort of paraffin gauze to make it easy to pass in order to not leave tough knots in the anal canal. And you basically do a number of these interrupted sutures um, circumferentially around the anal canal, pretty much at all of the numbers of the clock face. And then when you tie these, this should plicate the muscle back together. This is well tolerated in elderly patients. It's got relatively low morbidity and mortality. You're not doing a full thickness resection, so you avoid the risks of a anastomotic leak or reduce the risks of an anastomotic leak. And it has approximately a 30% recurrence rate, but it can be repeated. The next procedure is an Altmyers procedure, and this can also be described as a perineal rectosigmoidectomy. This isn't done as much in Australia. I think the Delorme's procedure is a preference, but this may be indicated in a very large prolapse. If there's a full thickness prolapse and there's ischemia or necrosis of the bowel wall, you obviously can't just reduce that back in if, it, if a patient has necrosis on presentation. And this procedure is again done in lithotomy and it involves reducing the entire prolapse out through the anus, a full thickness excision of the outer cylinder of the prolapse, 
requires control of mesenteric vessels, which need to be ligated, and anastomosis of the distal aspect of the remaining colon to the rectal stump. So you end up doing a transanal coloanal anastomosis. This has potential complications such as an anastomotic leak and pelvic sepsis. It does have a recurrence rate of about 10 to 15% and it obviously removes most of the rectum. So it reduces rectal capacity and can cause issues with fecal incontinence. Moving now to abdominal operations. The options here are essentially a laparoscopic or an open rectopexy. And there's a number of options with a retropexy, which include whether you use a mesh or not, and where you put the mesh, whether you do an anterior or posterior rectopexy. And then the last option, which I briefly mentioned earlier, was whether you also do a sigmoid resection as part of this operation. From talking to some of the surgeons I work with, it looks like a laparoscopic ventral rectopexy where the mesh is placed anteriorly seems to be most in favor at the moment. This operation involves a laparoscopic approach with dissection along the right lateral aspect of the rectum and you sort of tease a plane between the rectum and the vagina. And then a piece of mesh is sutured onto the front of the rectum as low down as possible and then also up and along the side of the rectum so that that whole rectum is fixed in position. And then the mesh is pulled up so that the top of the mesh is then sutured to the sacral promontory, which kind of hitches the rectum up and holds it up into the abdominal cavity. And then also you can then close the peritoneum back across the top of the mesh, which is thought to reduce the risk of mesh erosion. The benefits of this approach are that you're avoiding a lot of the posterior and lateral dissection, um, which was thought to impact on the parasympathetic nerves, which as per the first part of this episode, we know are very important for sensing stool in the rectum and encouraging evacuation of the rectum. Often a non-absorbable polypropylene mesh will be used for this operation. Another approach is to do a posterior mesh rectopexy, such as the Wells technique, where the mesh is placed behind the rectum and the superior rectal artery and then fixed up to the sacrum before being wrapped around both sides and fixed to the lateral mesorectum. This may be good for patients without any pre-existing constipation or patients who have diarrhea or incontinence prior to surgery. The next decision is whether or not to do a resection rectopexy, so combining a resection with the rectopexy. Looking through, it seems like this is an option, but it's not really done that much anymore. It's thought that this sort of straightens out the colon and removes a redundant part of the colon and reduces constipation. However, the obvious downside of this is that you then get an anastomosis. You're also putting mesh into an area where you've opened the bowel. And with a ventral mesh rectopexy, there's less issues with constipation, so it's not done as frequently anymore. The other thing just to mention is that the original rectopexy was actually a sutured rectopexy where sutures were used between the sacrum and the lateral mesorectal tissues in order to hold it in place. This doesn't have very good long-term success and isn't really used as much anymore. So to finish off this episode, just a brief note about internal intersusception. 
If you remember all the way back to the start of this section of the podcast, we talked about an internal intersusception being where the prolapse doesn't pass beyond the anus. And this is often demonstrated on imaging examinations such as an MRI defecography. This can be seen in healthy people as well, and it's not clear whether this is a pathological or a normal process. Apparently, there's been some court cases about repairs for this problem in the UK and then consequences related to it. So you can't actually do a rectopexy for an internal intersusception in the UK apart from in certain areas. So I'd be pretty nervous in a patient with no symptoms or in a patient with symptoms that don't fit with intersusception or with rectal prolapse to be doing an operation on a patient who only has that finding on imaging alone. And that's it for this episode on anorectal incontinence and rectal prolapse. Hope you learned something. I know they may not be considered particularly glamorous topics, but we're definitely going to have patients that we see in the clinic with these problems. And if you have a good approach to working them up, investigating them and knowing what management options there are, you could potentially improve patients' qualities of life quite significantly. As usual, remember to rate, review and subscribe so that others can find this podcast. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying! <laughs>